following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. We're currently in the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 1. The end of this chapter really shows us how to find encouragement in the midst of life's struggles, and that's where we are. So this morning we come to, uh, I guess, another coffee cup verse uh, in the Bible. Now these are those well-known verses that you just kind of smack on a coffee cup because they look really good and it's, it's a commonly known um, verse. Philippians just has a handful of them. Uh, we've already seen that verse in Philippians 1 that says, I uh, thank God for all my remembrance of you. Maybe you have a coffee cup that says that. Later we'll encounter, I can do all things through him who gives me strength and I count all things rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Well today we come across a phrase uh, that is to live is Christ, to die is gain. It looks good on a coffee cup, but its meaning is nothing trivial. And so I'd like to read uh, this portion of scripture this morning for us. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Philippians is really this only letter that we see written by Paul in the New Testament that isn't trying to correct some really bad behavior of the Christians in the church. It's not trying to teach or to rebuke them, uh, to change what they're doing. Uh, He's showing us in this passage what it's like to have this gospel-shaped life. He's encouraging us and the the recipients of this letter what it looks like to have encouragement in all things, to have joy in all things, and encouragement for shaping our life around the gospel so that no matter what happens to us, we have joy. No matter what happens, we're not robbed of our joy, even if that's death. And so Paul has a lot to teach us about life, about what it looks like to be a maturing Christian, what it means to be a maturing person in the gospel. And if you hated Jesus, if you were a person in the time here where where Paul lives, if you hated Jesus, Paul is your worst nightmare. How do you scare a guy? How do you threaten a guy? How do you hold threats over a person that when he's threatened with death and torture, he says, sounds good, to die is gain. I get to be with Christ. You could not out-enjoy him. You could not out-enjoy Paul. John Chrysostom was an early church father in the first century. He spoke out against many public sins of the church that were being embraced and and against the abusive power uh, politically. And he he writes this. He says, If the empress wishes to banish me, let her do so. The earth is the Lord's. If she wants to have me sawn asunder, I will have Isaiah for an example. If she wants me to be drowned in the ocean, I think of Jonah. If I am to be thrown in the fire, the three men in the furnace suffered the same. If, if cast before wild beasts, I remember Daniel in the lion's den. 
If she wants me to be stoned, I have before me Stephen, the first martyr. If she demands my head, let her do so. John the Baptist shines before me. And John Chrysostom was banished to the desert where he eventually collapsed and died. A person who is united with Christ is a person that can never be conquered. Paul is like this. He's John Chrysostom, we see an example. We see Paul. We see several others. It's as just this last week, the 26-year-old Prescott girl who was taken hostage by ISIS and eventually killed by a raid last week, she sent a letter home to her family and she said, I have learned that even in prison one can be free. If, if you want to kill me, I will be more than fine. I will be with Jesus. If you want to let me live, that is fine too, because then I can continue in my mission and what God desires for me. My life will be filled with Christ. My suffering will make me more like Him. Don't you see that there's nothing that you can do, even take my very life, that can take me away from that joy? This is the portrait of these people that we see, that we see in Paul. A gospel-shaped life fills our life with this unconquerable faith. If you're united with Christ in the gospel, you are as secure as Jesus himself. According to Jesus, even if you die, you will live forever. You may be thinking, that's not me. I love Jesus, I have faith, I believe in the gospel, but that is not me. I have never had that thought. I've never believed that. I don't think like that. I'm not courageous like that. And let me, let me be an encouragement to you. Of course you can. Of course you're not like that. This is not natural. No person in their right mind can think like this. It's a supernatural work that God does in our hearts to have this perspective. But this is what God does as His Spirit changes us and transforms us and gives us hope and encouragement. We find ourselves having this this perspective that is not, not inside of us. It's something that's totally unnatural, totally supernatural. But the gospel creates this new reality to look at life in, a new reality that deepens our understanding of the world and how we see it. It deepens our understanding of life and how we live it. It deepens our understanding of death as we, as we anticipate it. It deepens our understanding of the whole picture of everything in our life. And that's what the gospel does. So here is the new reality that Paul lives in that makes us unconquerable in the midst of suffering that I want to encourage us all with this morning as we walk through this passage. What is this like? What does this gospel-shaped life look like that makes our joy unconquerable? The first is, that, is understanding that suffering is temporary. Suffering is temporary. For I know, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that I will be rescued from this. One way or another, this won't last forever. Paul fully believed that God would one day deliver him from his physical afflictions and his emotional struggle and his physical bondage and his emotional bondage. In any case, Paul knew that his present circumstances were not going to last forever. And ours won't either. Paul's comments are very similar. This almost exact, uh, his words are almost an exact uh, in structure of another man in, in the Bible who is most known for his struggle. 
and his suffering, and that's the man Job in the Bible. Probably the most notorious sufferer was Job, and he has his property, his possessions, his family, all taken from him. And he is left, uh, uh, his health is afflicted, everything. He is left with nothing and alone in just ashes. He's left to suffer alone. And his free, three friends come to him and try to give him support and try to give him advice, and it's, it's, it's not great advice. And one says, it's obvious that you have done something wrong against God. It's obvious that you have sinned against God to make him angry. And that's why all these things are happening. If you would just repent of whatever you're doing, and God will forgive you and rescue you. And Job replies, and he says, even though God has done this suffering to me, even though uh, I have not sinned, I will continue to trust in him because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that this is temporary. And like Job, Paul knew that God wasn't punishing him because he had done some evil, but he was suffering still. His comfort came from knowing God would rescue him eventually, that God would rescue him, and it would be temporary. And this enabled him to have joy in the midst of that struggle. Imagine that perspective for us if we would just, whatever struggle we find ourselves in, the encouragement that we would have just knowing, yeah, this, this does really hurt. This is really bad. This is really a suffering. But it won't last forever. The new reality that the gospel shapes in us is, is a certainty that it's temporary. And before you say, gosh, this sounds like very Annie, like very the sun will come out tomorrow, uh, you know, having the mantra like, this too shall pass, this too shall pass, uh, I've heard this before, like, what is this? Uh, that is, is not where the gospel wants to take us, because that is not the end of this perspective. The gospel doesn't just take us to the sun will come out tomorrow and then just leave us. The gospel takes us so much further than that. The gospel takes us to this point of, of depth and, and certainty in the love of God that we have this unshakable courage in the midst of trouble because one day we will stand before God as one, is his, of, one of his redeemed people, one of his beloved children rescued from God's wrath and the consequence of sin forever, knowing that we will not be judged according to our sin, but that we will be redeemed and blessed by God because of the gospel, this good news. And because of this, our suffering is temporary, but our joy is permanent. Permanent. Without Christ, the best we could hope for is just is, is also temporary encouragement. This too shall pass. But then when that joy comes, then that joy will be temporary. And then there'll be suffering again. And then there'll always be this cycle of just temporary relief and temporary suffering. But in Christ, our suffering is temporary and our joy is eternal. Paul works through this idea with us even further, and he says, God works through prayer. Here is another gospel-shaped perspective for our suffering, is that it's temporary, and that he works through prayer, that prayer functions, and it works, and it has great power. Paul believed in the limitless sovereignty of God. This means if we were to ask Paul, Paul, what does God have control over? He would say, absolutely everything 
and everyone and everything seen and everything invisible, everything that was, that is, and that will be, God is in control of it all. But he wouldn't be thrown off by the question, okay, Paul, let me get this then. Why do we pray? He would say, this doesn't scare me. Paul shows that this, there's harmony between the two, that God is sovereign over all, controlling of all things, and prayer works. Because in his infinite and limitless wisdom, he incorporates the prayers of his people to accomplish his, his eternal plans. He uses prayers of his people as a means of accomplishing his good work. So pray. So pray when you're struggling. Invite others to pray for you, as Paul does on numerous occasions. A person who is, who is passionately defending the sovereignty of God ought to be a person who is a passionate prayer. It's not one or the other. Paul's courage in the face of death comes also, not just praying it works, but another thing is that Christ is forever with us. Let's look at this. He says, the help of the Holy Spirit. More literally, he says, the supply of the Holy Spirit through your prayers, the, su- the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He says elsewhere in, in letters that he's written in Ephesians, he says the Holy Spirit, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask according to the power that works in us. May God supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And in Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. All of these things, Paul is saying that that there is power. And God's working through our prayers and the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in our life, to accomplish what he desires. It is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to produce in the life of a believer this abundance of spiritual fruit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do we get that? How do we get those things? I want to be encouraged. I want to bear that kind of fruit. I want to have those attitudes in my life. Well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to produce that in us. When we're struggling, isn't it really common to just lose that joy, to lose that encouragement? I mean, this is, these are the times when we're really losing encouragement is when we're suffering, when we're struggling, whether it's emotional, relational, whether it's physical, whether it's in a job or, or elsewhere. And it's so important to realize that even when we perceive God's distance, that he is right there with us, that he is very present. We are united with Christ by faith. I think this is why this unique phrasing is used. The help, Paul says, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying we are united with Christ so that we will always enjoy His presence and friendship and union and fellowship with Jesus even when He is not here in body and physically in body. Do you ever wonder why Jesus left? Like, if this is so great to have Christ, why did he leave? The very purpose of why he left was so that we could have him forever, so that he could be with us forever. He says, I'm leaving you, he says to his disciples. I'm leaving you so that the helper might come and that he would guide you in all truth and all manners of gospel living and all encouragement and all joy. I'm leaving. I'm going so that you will never be alone. And I'm sending my spirit to be with you. 
And so Paul has this perspective of, I'm in struggle, but Christ is with me forever. He's with me right now. The power and comfort of Christ is not confined to the presence of his physical body. I think this is something so hard to believe, so hard to imagine and to realize in our life, that the power and comfort of Christ is with us by faith, and it's not confined to his physical presence, that he is with us as we struggle. The omnipresence of God, his all around us, his all presence, is a demonstration of his unfailing love for us and his tremendous encouragement during times of struggle. And Paul is so aware of this. He is so aware that he says, your prayers and the help of the Spirit will turn out for my deliverance. And I'm joyful and I'm encouraged because I know that he's with me. He appropriately links prayer with power of the Holy Spirit. These kinds of prayers are the, are the help me kind of prayers. The help me God, I'm in need of you. We pray for the supply of God to comfort us. It's not natural to rejoice in all things. It's just, it's just not. It's natural, on the other hand, I think, when you get to, to feel robbed, when something is hard, something's going on in your life that you feel hurt about and struggling about. You feel robbed. You feel betrayed. You feel abused. You feel mistreated. You feel like some injustice has been done to you. It's not natural to feel joy. It's the work of God in us, listen to this, through the Holy Spirit to bring out an unnatural response of courageous trust in the midst of struggle. For this reason, we pray. We pray because we are asking God to create in us an unnatural response, an unnatural hope, an unnatural trust in the midst of struggle. And so often when we just rely on our natural ability to feel joy and struggle. We say, well, obviously something's not working. Either I don't have faith, God doesn't care, this is happening because he's punishing me. And we go through a whole host of reasons that are all wrong. And then when we realize, it's not natural for me to trust. It's not natural for me to feel joy. And I need God to give that to me. I pray that as you guys are working through your struggles and working through your your sorrows and your sufferings, that there would be a slight change in the way that you pray. Instead of praying, God, just change everything around me, but God, give me this unnatural ability to have courage in the midst of what I'm going through, to see you, to enjoy you. And moving on, we see this other, another reality of Paul, his unconquerable joy, and that is that God is a promise keeper. He says, our joy is not based on our character, it's not based on our ability, our joy is based on the promise of God. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether through life or in death. Paul says he eagerly expects and hopes. This isn't like this optimistic, wishful thinking. I hope that things turn out good. He is that says, I'm eagerly expecting God to deliver me, to bring me joy, to bring me encouragement. To, this is really fun, because to, what he's saying is to eagerly expect literally means to stick out my neck and point my head forward. So we're asking Paul, 
Paul, what are you doing as you are waiting on God to answer you and to give you deliverance? He says, well, I'm doing this. Just, I'm looking forward. I'm waiting on God. What's the opposite of that? What, what is the opposite of this, this disposition? Now, he's saying, I'm doing this in my heart, right? Not physically. I'm, uh, in my heart is stretching forward to Christ. My neck is straight. My head is forward. I am focused on Christ, and I'm waiting for him to, watch, to, to come. I'm watching for him. I expect with all hope and all joy that he will come because I believe that he has promised he will do that, and he is a promise keeper. And he will not go back on anything that he has promised. And he has promised that I will not be put to shame. That my suffering will be temporary. That I'm as secure as Christ himself as I trust in him. That nothing can conquer my joy. So I stretch out my neck. And I focus on him. And I wait for him to act. He's fixed on the promise of Jesus. And he remains firm in this faith. So... What's the opposite of that? What does it look like, the opposite of this eager expectation? Well, it's, it's a suspicious, cautious, timid, a paranoid, paranoid view of the affection of God. Instead of looking forward, we're, we're kind of looking around saying, does God care? Is he around? Is he coming? Did I do something wrong and now he's upset with me and that's why he's punishing me? Should I find something else? This really insecure, timid, paranoid this not a focused, but a vulnerable faith. Paul says, that's not what I'm doing. We often misunderstand, we misperceive, misunderstand God's lack of, of action in our life for, for the idea that he doesn't care about us. Well, he's not doing anything, so he must not care. We might be tempted to abandon trust in God and take matters in our own hands. But Paul says elsewhere, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. He says there are greater days coming. There are greater things ahead. A greater reward. A greater life. And all the purpose of life while I'm living is to, is to live in light of all that I have in Christ. D.L. Moody was a 19th century pastor who, who founded the, Bible, uh, the Moody Bible Institute. It's a school uh, for theological training. Maybe some of you are aware of it. And he says, he says this to his students. He says, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe, don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. He keeps his promises. His plans are unshakable. What does this look like to have for, for, for you to have this fixed neck, straightforward, eyes focused on him? unwavering trust in what he has given to us in Jesus. And lastly, God's plans are unshakable. Similar to this previous one, but Paul continues. This is what we might ask Paul. Paul, what do you think is going to happen to you? This is maybe what the Philippian church is asking. What's going to happen? Are you going to die? Are you going to live? And Paul says, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that God's plan will be fully accomplished either way. Romans 14, 7 through 9 says this, Paul writes, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that, we might be, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. The incarnation of God, 
the birth of Jesus Christ, God becoming a man, was a deliberate design, a deliberate plan of God. The life, death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was accomplished as a definite plan of God. Paul preached for Christ. He traveled for Christ. He was persecuted and imprisoned for Christ. And ultimately, he would die for Christ. But even death, by God's marvelous grace, was ultimately part of his plan for God's eternal glory and Paul's ultimate joy. Above our door, in the sanctu- above the sanctuary, it's, it says, magnify, live, and engage. And magnifying God's glory, we believe that uh, this firm conviction that we have um, that all that we do is for the advancement of the honor and glory of God. And Paul had this firm conviction that no matter what, God's plans will continue. No matter what, they will be full. No matter what, his plans will come about. And there's nothing I can do, whether, and there's nothing you can do, whether I live or die, that is going to thwart what God desires to do. And in that, I have great hope. And since Paul's greatest joy was found in magnifying God's glory and proclaiming the gospel, he knew it would happen in his life or death, and he was excited about that. Now, it wasn't always, our, our vision always, wasn't always magnify God's glory. Uh, when we first started, where there was just a, a dozen of us around, uh, it was to increase the glory of God. So instead of magnify God's glory, it was increase God's glory. And then I repented and confessed to my sin and asked for forgiveness and said, God, we can't increase your glory. We can't make more of it. We can't make you bigger. You are what you are and who you are. What we can do is is behold your glory and manifest your glory in our world and in our life, and we can trust in you. We see that in Christ, we see God's agenda for all of creation. All of creation, we see, God, what brings you glory? In his perfect son, and his life, death, death, and resurrection for us, and in trusting in him, and resting in him, in spite of our struggles and circumstances, this is what is glorifying to God, and having this gospel-shaped life where everything we do is a reflection and manifestation of trusting in God, then he is glorified in our life. We do not make him bigger, we just make him known in our life and in the life, lives around us. So Paul is joyful no matter what. His utter devotion to Christ and to have Christ magnified in his life, no matter what his circumstances, ruled him. So both our living and dying belong to the Lord. This is the tension for every Christian, I think. Every person who follows Jesus and wants to grow in their relationship with God, this is the tension. Do I live or die? What is better? Should I be joyful in my living? Should I be joyful in my dying? And this, this tension I want to call, I want to call this tension the clash. Named after the 1980s punk rock band named by the same name. And their hit single, uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go? One of the best bands of the 80s and the number one song, Should I Stay or Should I Go? It's listed as one of the best rock songs of all time. If I stay, there will be trouble. If I go, there will be double. Am I hitting anybody? So part of our spiritual maturity is to know that God will be intimately and ultimately glorified in our life and in our death. And we belong to be with him, though. To really grow in our relationship with God is to grow in in a desire to be with Him because we love Him. 
And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be with Christ. Paul says, don't get me wrong, I really, really want to be with Christ. But spiritual greatness also includes being totally committed to the advancement of the gospel while we are alive and while we are living here and understanding what God has for us and what plans he has for us and to be devoted to those and find joy in those things as we long for him and as we wait for him. I've had people ask, if heaven is so great, if Jesus is so great, then why should we continue to go on living? Why not drink the Kool-Aid? Why not? I mean, seriously, why not? I mean, many people have thought of this question and, and, and have done that and said, I can't think of a good reason why. Let's just all die. God, life is so hard. And if being with you is so good, then what's the point of enduring it all? I can make it end right now. And I, I want to be sensitive in this because I know that there maybe some of you have contemplated this and have thought about this and have wanted your struggles to end so much that you just don't want to be alive. And I want you to know that Paul did not escape this tension, this dilemma, which he so wonderfully expresses in these verses. But he could both long to be with Jesus and rejoice that it was God's plan for him to continue to live at the same time. Paul was in confusion at this time on what to choose. He didn't know which one to choose at first because he didn't know what yet God wanted for him. It's okay not to know. But even though there is tension, it's okay to, to want struggles to end and want to be encouraged and to find joy. Don't you appreciate Paul's honesty? That he's acknowledging his struggle and his desire to be with the Lord, but also his joy in knowing that God is good and that God's plans will be complete and that God has him there for a reason and those reasons are good. And if our ultimate desire is to glorify God and to love God, then we will do what he desires for us, even if that means to go on living in the midst of our struggles, knowing that his gospel will be magnified in our life. Don't get me wrong, I'd love to be with Jesus right now. I love looking at your pretty faces, but I would love to be with Jesus. But as far as a believer's joy and personal satisfaction is concerned, going to be with Christ is much better than staying here. Paul agrees that he, that he would be better off dead. And this death, this desire to be with Christ, is, it's not a sense of someone losing self-esteem or becoming very uh, terminally depressed and longing to be out of life as quickly as possible. Rather, Paul is so full of life and energy and, and, and love for God that he could get back to work right when he was released from prison. He's a man whose life is, is oriented around a love for Jesus, so much that he wants to be with him, but so much so that if Jesus wants him to stay, then he says, well, then I'm here to stay. Whatever you want, Lord, I love you so much. I think this is probably the best way, that a, the best language used in Scripture about this topic and the best way a Christian can think about these things, about life and death. I would love to be with Jesus, but I love him so much that I'm willing and want to do what he desires for me to do. And I want to find encouragement in that process because all of our life, even our death, belongs to him. 
to live as Christ and to die as gain. So therefore we are eager and joyful servants and we say, God, what do you have for me? And until I hear from you, I'll, I'll wait with joyful expectation and hoping and knowing that, that you're good and everything that you do is good. The Christian's life is not our own. Our life is not our own. We belong to Jesus. He's purchased us with the price of his blood and death on the cross for us. We belong to him and it frees us from our sin and it gives us eternal life. And now look at something so crazy that Paul says. He says, I would gladly postpone being with Jesus if it, for the sake of you growing in your walk with God. Paul, that's a bad investment. <laughs> but what does that say about Paul and his love for Jesus? That it is more than just this immature infatuation with being comfortable, but it is a gospel-shaped love for God, knowing that in magnifying His glory is the greatest thing that one could give their life for. A tremendous love for God and a love for others, a tremendous love for making the gospel known. If God wants me to be a great door greeter, then God, let me, let me do that. I'm prepared to do that for your glory. God, if you uh, are glorified um, by me being single, then let me do that with the best joy and encouragement. Lord, if you are glorified by me having, uh, a, a, have adopting kids and having a household of kids, then, let, then be glorified in that. If you are glorified in a job that I do not at the time enjoy, then Lord, let me have joy and be, do this work as to you, because to live is Christ. And Lord, if it is your desire that I would not go on living, that I would suffer now, then it is all for gain. No circumstance, however severe, could steal Paul's joy. He is your worst enemy. He's your worst person to deal with if you're wanting to take away his joy. Nothing could diminish his enthusiasm for ministry. Nothing could keep him from his eager expectation for being with Jesus. For he knew that his time spent living or dying would not be in vain. To live as Christ means that we are living life, striving for a deeper faith, with a fearlessness that is bound up in the love of Jesus. To live as Christ means that today we are choosing to dig deeper into our faith and love for Jesus so that in all things, nothing would conquer our joy and that we would wait with eager expectation for the next thing that he has for us, to live with such clarity that Christ is better than all things and he loves us so much. We will never be put to shame. We will never be ashamed by choosing Jesus over anything else. So whether we live or die, let's choose Jesus. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.